All right, so I like to begin by quizzing you. You'll get used to it. Uh, I once taught a a high school Sunday school class, and I think all those kids, years later, they can all tell me when the Westminster Confession was written, because I quizzed them an annoyingly frequent a n- number of times, but who can, t- who can name for us the last five kings of Judah in order without looking at the handout? Who can name for me the, the last five kings of Judah? Noah can. Josiah, Joaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. Perfect, yes. You remember how you can remember this? I gave you a really dorky mnemonic device. Anyone who uses the word mnemonic is a dork to begin with. You can all remember Josiah from those wonderful Bible story books you had as a kid. Remember the child king who found the book of the law in the temple? And then the, the next three are harder because they, well, they don't, their names don't rhyme because rhyme is when some, what do you, what do you call it when the, the first syllable's the same? I don't remember, but Je- how do you remember Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin? Who c- how do you remember? Has Kim a chin. Yeah, has Kim a chin, right? So think of the, think of the, um, think of the political cartoon of uh, Kim Jong-un. It's fitting because he's a tyrant, Jehoiakim's a tyrant. You can remember that. Has Kim a chin. Jehoahaz. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, okay? And then, how do you remember that Zedekiah was the last king of Judah? Z, Z, the last letter of the alphabet. Now, why is that important? Is it just because Munson likes history? No, it's important because Jeremiah can be a challenging book to read. And part of what makes it challenging is it's got a lot of autobiography in it. More so than any of the other writing prophets, Jeremiah gives you glimpses of his own life. God, the Holy Spirit, wants you to be thinking about Jeremiah's life. And that can be hard to do because it's all a jumble in the book. It's not always chronological. But the way these events in his life are dated inevitably is by the king's reign. So if you remember those five names in order, it can help you to keep straight. Well, this happened, the the incident I'm reading about now happened before the incident I read in Tuesday's Bible reading. That's why I, I recommend that to you. Now, you actually can remember the length of these five reigns. It's not hard. Who can, well, I'll go, I'll do the first one. Josiah reigned for 31 years. Who can tell me how long Jehoahaz reigned for? Three months. Three months. months. Who can tell me how long Jehoiakim reigned? Eleven years. Eleven years. How long did Jehoiachin reign? Three months. Three months. And how long did Zedekiah reign? Eleven years. years. You can remember that, right? Three months, eleven years. Three months. 11 years. It's very symmetrical. And that's why Jehoiakim and Zedekiah and Josiah figure so much more prominently in 
Jeremiah's life than do Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin. Although they figure in it as well, and we'll talk about that, uh, especially on July 30th. Okay, the other tip I gave you two weeks ago was to learn a date or two. Not because Jeremiah uses dates, he doesn't. He refers to king's reigns. But if you use a study Bible at all, if you use the ESV study Bible, if you use the Reformation study Bible, they're going to refer to years. So if you just encounter this random number, it's not going to mean anything to you unless you have a context to put it in. And if you say, oh, but Paul, I'm really bad with dates, I get that. But here's the secret to learning dates. The more you learn, the easier they get. Because you learn them in relation to the other dates. So you have to start somewhere. And I suggested the best date of all to learn from the lifetime of Jeremiah is the fall of Jerusalem. It's one of the best dates to learn from the whole Old Testament. Who can tell me when did, when is the fall of Jerusalem. When was it burned? When was the temple destroyed? 587. 587. Or as Sylvia pointed out last week, some Bible scholars say 586. One of those two years. Now, You're really doing well if you can tell me when Jeremiah's call happened. Anyone know the date of Jeremiah's call? 627. According to Jeremiah chapter 1, this is the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. You see how the writer Jeremiah uses king's reigns. And to make your life easier, that's 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem. The number 40, a meaningful number in the Bible? You ever encounter that anywhere else in the Bible? I think you can remember that? All right. Thanks for your indulgence with that. Now let's, let's review what we read in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So, in chapter 1... We had, we we read that two weeks ago, we had the call of the prophet Jeremiah when he was only a youth. And you remember the Lord told him that he would have to pluck up and break down, destroy and overthrow before he could build and plant. Four negative verbs, two positive verbs, Reflecting perhaps the proportions of what we get in biblical prophecy, but notice what gets the last word the two positive verbs. Then, in subsequent chapters, we get a pretty good introduction to what the book of Jeremiah is all about. Remember, Old Testament prophets basically have four messages, they're going to tell us. How sinful we are. They're going to describe sin for us. And they're going to warn us about judgment. And they're going to invite 
sinners to repent. And for those who do repent, the Old Testament prophets are going to give us promises, precious, comforting promises about how God relates to his people and what God plans for the future, promises you can count on. So we talked last week about how right off the bat in the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, different prophet, you get all four of those, pretty much equal measure. It's a great introduction to the book of Isaiah. Well, Jeremiah begins with Jeremiah's call, but then in chapters 2, 3, 4, frankly, 5 and 6 as well, those five chapters, you get those four things. Uh, unlike in Isaiah where, it's, where you get a short poem of one and a short poem of another and a short poem of another in short succession, in Jeremiah you get longer stretches. So in chapter 2, we had sin. We talked at length last week about sin. The setting was a trial. Remember this? Remember what God is doing in Jeremiah chapter 2? Shocking, really. Do you remember? Filing for divorce. That's, that's the, the image. Although he never went through with it, God, in chapter 2, presents the evidence that if he had gone through with it, it would have been a righteous divorce. In chapter 3, we had the invitation to come back home. Jeremiah's plea, not just for repentance, but for a different kind of repentance. Not insincere, but, but honest and humble, and active. But our reading last week ended on an ominous note. I read all the way through chapter 4, verse 3. Actually, um, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. We read this. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And here it comes. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So here we have the third of those four main topics of the Old Testament prophets. Today we're going to deal with the elephant in the room. The, the main reason, as far as I can tell from my conversations with my, my fellow Christians, the, the biggest struggle that people have reading the prophets is there's just so much judgment. People tend to find that depressing, oppressive. Um, but, but I think it's very worthwhile and so we're going to talk about it today. Today is our judgment day. Well, no. <laughs> well, it'd be great if Jesus came back again. But uh, lowercase j. Lowercase j. Lowercase d. Um, and uh, before reading chapter 4, I'd like to read a verse from chapter 5, which I think um, encapsulates the whole point of chapter 4 in a sentence. I'm going to read chapter 5, verse 30. 
and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? So the, the leaders rebel against God. Both the prophets and the priests go their own way. But you can't just blame them because that's how the people want it to be. But what will you do when the end comes? That's what chapter 4 is all about. It is a frightening thing when divine warnings go unheeded. And immediately after what we talked about last week in chapters 2 and 3, Jeremiah is haunted by a terrifying vision of judgment. One act of wrath after another in short succession. It's describing an invasion. Now, we know it's going to be the Babylonians who are going to invade. Um, First in 597, that's the time of the great deportation, but then finally in 587 as well, when they finally burn the city and burn the temple. I'm not sure that Jeremiah at this point knows that it's Babylon. Remember chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, this is early in his ministry. This is during the reign of King Josiah, when When Jeremiah is helping out in King Josiah's reforms, he's a circuit preacher. We we read about this in chapter 11, how he went to all the cities of Judah, and he went to all the streets of Jerusalem, preaching these four things, right? Sin, warning, invitation, promise. And chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 are a pretty good anthology of what he was preaching. At that time, no one was afraid so much of Babylon. Assyria was still the dominant uh, empire. Um, So you'll notice the, the nation that's invading is not identified in this vision. Now, God's people knew full well how horrifying an invasion could be. Had they ever been invaded? Just just 80 years before, during the reign of King Hezekiah, Assyria had invaded Judah. And it was terrible. And Jerusalem was besieged and all the other cities conquered The people of God knew how horrible an invasion could be. But now, presumably in a vision, Jeremiah experiences something similar, but in the future, not the past. I think of um, 2 Peter 1. Would someone read 2 Peter 1, chapter 21? Chapter 1, verse 21. 2 Peter 1, 21. 
For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Yes. I think of um, the prophets are moved by the Holy Spirit. The ESV says, carried along with the Holy Spirit. Um, What Jeremiah sees here is not merely a figment of his imagination. It's a vision given by God. And uh, if you find chapter 4 confusing... I think that is on purpose. The writer intends for that. If you, if you feel like the images are coming at you fast and furious and changing without warning, if you can't quite figure out the order of events, I think the poet is trying to recreate that sense of panic that would accompany an invasion in the ancient world. What are we going to do? What's going to happen? Um, I, I think it's meant to be like a nightmare. It begins with a clap of... Uh, it, sound, it begins with an alarm, like a clap of thunder, and it ends with a woman writhing in childbirth with all sorts of um, scary images in between. I'm going to read the chapter now. And as I do, consider how real, how vivid judgment is to Jeremiah. This is not some theological abstraction for him. He's experiencing it firsthand in his vision. He is absolutely terrified. Are we? Where there is no repentance, God's judgment is very near. That's the point. So I'm going to read starting in verse 5. Verse 5 to the end. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not. For I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people. 
not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field. Are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. How, but how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O oh, desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, 
anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. All right. It's tough stuff to read. Let's go through these images one by one and and flesh them out together. So we begin with a trumpet. Now, when you read the word trumpet in the Old Testament, what should you be thinking of? Is this a shiny brass instrument that you press buttons? Um, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, is this what we're supposed to be thinking of? Where's Clyde when I need him? What, what, when you see Old Testament stories in Hollywood movies, do they play shiny brass instruments? What do they play? An animal, an animal horn. Yep. The ram's horn. The shofar. Ever heard that Hebrew word before? I wish I had one. It would have been fun to bring it in. Wouldn't it be fun to play a shofar in here? Right? From a height, played from a height, the shofar could be heard for miles. Imagine, you hear one from, from Boiling Springs. And then... You hear one coming from the OPC church over there from the other direction and, and they come faster and it's like, it's like the civil defense system sirens going off. What do you do when you hear the siren? You go for shelter, right? If it's a tornado, you go to your basement. If it's the Assyrians, where do you go? What does verse 5 say? You go to the fortified cities. Like, Like Zion, Jerusalem being the most fortified of them all at that time in that in, in, in Judah. In verse 7, he gives us a different image. A lion. Um, I'm sure every one of us has seen a predator kill its prey and eat it. If not in person, you've seen it in Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, right? It's, uh, It's not a very delicate and polite image, is it? In verse 9, we get one of um, Jeremiah's favorite references. He refers to the king and the priests and the prophets all in the same breath. We encountered that before. It was back, was it... Uh, um, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before that. And we'll encounter it again. All the 
people, all the leaders who are there to protect and lead the folk. It was 2 8. Yeah, 2 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And we'll encounter it again. All three mediatorial offices. They're appalled, they're astounded. What do you do when all your leaders are at a loss to know what to do? Verse 11, the image is a wind. The ESV says a hot wind. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's east wind. The Hebrew word for east wind is the word from which um, the modern Italian word Sirocco comes from. Uh, this is the desert wind, the wind that comes in, in Jerusalem. It's the wind that comes from the east. And it's a wind that is of no good. It does nothing good for us. It, doesn't, it can't winnow. It can't cleanse because it's too hot. It's too dry. It's too strong. It just destroys Beginning in verse 15, we get, almost, we get an almost spatial sense of urgency. A voice declares from Dan. Geography quiz. Where's Dan? In, your, in, your, in the map at the back of your Bible, relative to where God's people lived, where's Dan? Someone here knows. Do you know? Yeah, it's as far north as you basically could go among the settlements of the Jews. And that's the direction from which this, um, this army from the north, verse 6, is, is coming from. For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Where's Ephraim? Among the settlements of God's people. Ephraim is right in the middle, right? Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? That's, of course, the the center of Jeremiah's ministry. It's in the south. Like, verse 17, like keepers of the field are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me. Keepers of a field. We're, we're less and less agricultural in our sensibilities, but even if you've been a city kid all your life, you can imagine fields need keepers, don't they? Have you ever had a deer eat your hosta? Have you ever had a, a vole eat your tulips? Fields need keepers. So you can picture this. These farmhands encircling a field to watch and wait and guard the crops, to guard the crops from animals, from thieves. And imagine, just imagine how disorienting it would be, how shocking it would be to suddenly discover that these men that you thought were keepers of the field are actually attackers. They're turned not outward against the voles and deer. They're turned inward at you. 
It's a siege. It's a nightmare. Confusing. Terrifying. And then in verse 23, it goes from being confusing and terrifying to almost surreal. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. What does this language remind you of? I know it reminds you of something. Genesis 1, right? You've got um, earth without form, void. Behold, how often do you encounter the word behold in Genesis chapter 1? Seven times, right? Light, man, birds, But this isn't creation. What's happening here? John Shine says, uncreation. Absolutely. It's like, it's like you're watching. Who was the host on Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom? What was his name? I'm too, I'm too old. You young people don't remember. Mutual of Omaha. Right, right. What was the, Merle? Oh, anyways, is you're watching the move on to the next. You're watching the the nature video. You're watching the creation documentary. Ken Ham's documentary on creation, and the video starts going in reverse. When judgment comes, it's God invoking the sanctions for covenant breaking. And it brings the covenant curses on the covenant breakers. And it's, it's the undoing of all these good things that God has graciously done for his people. It's figuratively almost like taking back creation itself. We think that the idea of nuclear winter is a uniquely modern concept, but Jeremiah saw it all in his vision. And yet, we read in verse 27, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. What does that mean? Jeremiah's just described the undoing of creation. What is that if that's not a full end? What could that possibly mean? Well, hold that thought. We'll come back to it. My point in going through all these images is to show you how chapter 4 assaults your senses. You hear the shofars. You see the standards, the flags, You feel 
the hot sandstorm coming from the east. And then there's this chilling contrast between verse 20 and 25. In verse 20, it's all din and violence and confusion. Crash follows hard on crash. In verse 25, it's silent desolation. Nobody. Not even the birds. And then, in the silence, a woman screams. Verse 31. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. Now notice, Jeremiah is not describing a woman in labor. This is not a metaphor, it's a simile. If you remember the difference between that, those two words, your ninth grade English teacher is proud of you. right? Notice the grammar here. It says, for I heard a cry as of a woman in labor. This is not a woman in labor. Anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. This is not a woman giving... When when a woman's giving birth to her first child, it's horrible, but it's also wonderful because of what's coming. It's a life-giving pain. There's a promise, there's a hope there that might get you through it. There's no hope here. Jeremiah is describing what happens to women in war. And you know what happens to women in war. I don't need to go into the details. You've read the reports from Ukraine. It's horrible. Chapter 4 is an assault on your five senses and on your emotions. And it's meant to incite a response from you. All that, all, all that sensory overload, all those painful emotions are meant to break through your defenses, my defenses, to get us to care, to get us to once and for all hate our sin, to turn, to respond. And people do respond in this chapter. Let's talk about the responses. Some of them are appropriate responses. Some of them are not appropriate responses. How does Jeremiah respond in verse 10? Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. What's Jeremiah doing there? But you didn't think Jeremiah would ever say that. He's saying God's been lying. Absolutely. That's what the grammar in the Hebrew says. And it's not the only time in the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah confesses to having doubts. More on this on July 16th. Did God ever promise that things would be okay? Well, there are times in the history of his people. And I, I, earlier in class today, I mentioned the invasion of Assyria, you know, back around, what is it, like 701 or something like that, when, when Assyria invades and besieges Jerusalem. You remember King Hezekiah? 
Well, God made promises to King Hezekiah. He, God told King Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 37, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. But of course, that wasn't, that wasn't a promise for all time. That was a promise to a particular person in a particular generation, in a particular circumstance. Jeremiah, in verse 10, is responding by blame-shifting, by accusing God. That's not how you want to respond to the reality of God's justice. How does Judah respond in verse 30? And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. What's Judah trying to do there? The the images of a prostitute, obviously. What is Judah trying to do? How's Judah going to try to survive this invasion? Isn't some of this not just prostitute, but some of this is uh, descriptions of royalty, sort of uh, lifting themselves up as if they were important? Like, like Jezebel. Uh, there's that scene where Jezebel paints her face. Yeah, so there's pride, um, trying to cope with this threat by being uh, attractive to the enemy. As, as being something to be honored or valued or, or um, prized rather than destroyed. And Jeremiah is disgusted by this behavior. If Jeremiah had different typefaces, I think this would be in italics. What do you mean? that you dress in scarlet, of all the crazy things to do when you're being invaded. But this is what got her into this mess in the first place. Instead of putting her trust in the Lord, Judah put her trust in foreign alliances. And they didn't work out, did they? And so when the end comes, she, she just falls into her habitual behavior and Says, oh, you don't want to kill me? You want me. No, they don't want you. Your lovers despise you. So don't respond to the realities of God's justice by accusing him. And don't respond by going into denial. Respond the way Jeremiah does In verse 19, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Or verse 8, for this put on sackcloth, lament and wail. It is right and fitting for us to have an intense, negative, emotional response to the wages of sin. Jesus wept over death. 
My anguish, my anguish. But the best response of all is in verse 14. Oh, Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. Wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? And by the way, notice that the sin that brings on this judgment is not merely a matter of what they were doing. It's not merely a matter of actions. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you, right? What goes on inside us deserves judgment as much as what we do with those thoughts. Oh, do you not see how much we need the prophets? This is a warning we need to hear. Not because we need to question our salvation. The Bible is clear that we can have assurance of salvation. We, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you ought to have assurance of salvation. But for those who are only nominally Christian, they need to ask themselves the question, what will you do when the end comes? And even those of us who have put our trust in Christ, thinking about the wages of sin can help us to hate our sin more. I need all the help I can get to see just how loathsome my sin is. Because as, G- as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceptive above all things. Sick. But there's more to it than even that. This picture of a God so holy that he destroys evil is a beautiful thing. It seems strange for me to use that word. It is a beautiful thing. When we see the beauty in judgment, it's not that we're being sadistic. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and we should not either, but we should take pleasure in God's justice. It's not that we are sadistic, it's that we are sick and tired of sin. Sin in me, sin in you, and its effects on the world and and in our lives, and we long for sin to come to an end. Don't you long for sin to be judged and come to an end. I do. Whether it's at Calvary or the Day of Judgment, capital D, capital J. But it's even more than that. When we read about judgment in the prophets, we learn about the love of Christ. A God who loves us so much that he sent his Son to take on himself all these horrible things we've been reading about so that you wouldn't have to experience them. 
the more vividly we can understand the horrors of God's wrath, and the prophets are your friends in this. They will help you. The more vividly you and I can conceive of the horrors of God's wrath, the more we will wonder at him who would bear that wrath on our behalf. Can you not love a Savior like that? Where else do we encounter language in the Bible about the sky turning dark and there being an earthquake? Where else in the Bible do we read about creation being undone? Is it not at Calvary? Matthew 27, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. There are two judgment days. There's the general day of judgment when all will be held to account. But for those who have found refuge in the rock of ages in Christ, judgment day happened at Golgotha. We need the prophets. Don't let these descriptions of judgment depress you. Let them fill you with wonder at Christ's love and a renewed resolve to see just how foolish sin is. Would you take your hymnal and turn to hymn 319. 319. And stand.
Let's pray. Oh God, O oh King of all the earth, we, we bow before you and acknowledge your right to rule and we praise you for your justice and for your holiness. And we pray that you would make us more like you, more just, more holy. We pray that you would make our reading of the prophets more fruitful as we seek to serve you and to know you better in this life. And uh, as we look forward to the life to come, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.